and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. This week we're going to be talking about Sherlock. I'm Gavia and this is my co-host Morgan. Hello. So Sherlock just finished its fourth and probably final season. The season finale seemed fairly definitive anyway. And it's really been quite a roller coaster ride with this show. <laughs> I think yes. anyone who follows us on social media will probably be aware that we were in awe of season four. <laughs> It's, it's one of the worst, I wouldn't describe it as prestige drama, but like people have quite a lot of respect for Sherlock and it gets a lot of coverage as kind of a show with high production values and a famous cast. So it's nearly prestige, even though it's very silly. And this season was really a mess for quite a lot of reasons, um, which also quite a lot of season three was. But back in the day, Morgan and I really did like Sherlock a lot. Like in seasons one and two, I had some problems with it. You know, I was like, well, it's a little bit sexist kind of racist but like you know so is much of television so (laughs) on the whole enjoyable and every scene where Andrew Scott is playing Moriarty is priceless so (laughs) yes undeniably true (laughs) wasted yeah later appearances (laughs) I mean honestly like considering the number of incredibly stupid plot twists this show is either sold or failed to sell to us I would completely accept a pointless Moriarty resurrection at this point. Like, okay, he definitely got shot in the head and is definitely dead, but considering the other stuff they've done, just go ahead. Oh, Moriarty (laughs) had a twin. He was secretly twins all along. Fine. (laughs) I accept it. He was so efficient because he was just always twins. (laughs) But sadly, his, his momentary cameo this season was actually a flashback five years to the past. But even that was definitely the best. Um, But anyway, kind of before we go into season four of Sherlock, which... If you're really genuinely a super big Sherlock fan, you're probably not going to enjoy our response because we did hate it. But before that, I thought we'd (laughs) maybe talk a bit about the golden days of Sherlock and also Sherlock Holmes in general, because I love Sherlock Holmes. I've watched many an adaptation. I've read all the short stories, many of them, several times. Those stories still have a lot going for them, and that's why I'm sort of fascinated by the way modern Sherlock has tried to adapt it and also like a lot of it feels like a really clumsy and not very thoughtful adaptation because Sherlock as a crime show owes a lot to other odd couple crime shows and also the whole subgenre of TV dramas about a kind of socially eccentric really unpleasant clever white man solving problems and then his genius sort of excuses his behavior and sort of the peak of that was probably House with Hugh Laurie because that show really emphasizes how awful house is and while also it does like play into the archetype of it being like a terrible man who gets excused for solving his problems i think by the end of the show which nobody watched that i know but like by the end of the show they've basically obliterated him and sherlock kind of went in the opposite direction because it is one of these shows that really loves to torment its heroes but like ultimately the whole thing just constantly justifies sherlock's behavior and it also buys into british class structures in quite a self-unaware way (laughs) where, you know, the Holmes brothers are these sort of aristocrats, Mycroft especially, because like he's got all the trappings of being either like an upper level civil servant or some kind of behind the scenes government minister who lives in this wood panelled hall and is really posh and can basically do whatever he likes. You know, he essentially like murders people and has people imprisoned without trial and stuff. And it's generally portrayed as justifiable and like Sherlock can get away with anything because he's Sherlock Um, and I think compared to some of the lesser 
crime shows of that type, you know, like US network shows where you've got like 25 episodes a season, they're quite shitty. Even compared to that, Sherlock is quite egregious on that scale. (laughs) Yeah, well, the class stuff is quite interesting because it's in many ways a vision of the upper upper class as imagined by people who are not of that class. (laughs) And so then it is this weird sort of parodical, but not in an informed way and not specific. And the whole thing is very broad. So it's not like it has to be like an incredibly cutting social satire, but everything about Mycroft that you just described, where he like lives in this weird, like wood panel, (laughs) whatever, and carries his umbrella that has a sword in it. And it just doesn't scan as in any way, accurate and it's both sort of like you're supposed to think they're absurd but also like ah shucks they're you know they're such geniuses and they really do know what's best for the rest of us it's like i don't think so at all (laughs) yeah and i think that almost fits into the stereotype of the sherlock fan because obviously sherlock's kind of infamous for having a really intense audience and a lot of that is the more intense version of American Downton Abbey fans, where there's a lot of Anglophilia going on. The people who are really into like British culture, and then also Ben Dick Cumberbatch, and like to a lesser extent Martin Freeman as sort of avatars of Englishmen. And yes. The depiction of London is just absolute nonsense, because obviously it's not mostly filmed in London, like most of it's filmed in Cardiff. So if you watch this with someone who's Welsh, they'll just be like, oh, look! There's Wales. (laughs) But I mean, that's not, I don't care about that stuff. But like in terms of the depiction of London, by far the most noticeable thing is the fact that just like everyone in the show is white. And if you like go to, even if you're hanging out in Westminster, it's not that white. (laughs) Yes. Everyone in the show is a white man. It's definitely the most intense example of that that still exists in 2017, because over the past five years, there's been such a drastic change kind of in terms of casting and like having a diverse cast in mainstream tv shows obviously you know the problem has not been solved by any means but sherlock really seems like a relic of a bygone era and yeah in that sense it's worse than the original kind of sherlock holmes stories because they you know they don't really have a political slant as such but they feel a lot more i guess kind of sensitive even though they are within the Victorian framework of like the main characters, these sort of white male heroes, like one of them's a war veteran and the other one is this sort of intellectual eccentric. But the modern Sherlock is just such a kind of weirdly conservative interpretation of that compared to literally any other adaptation of Sherlock Holmes I've ever seen. I mean, obviously the main one is elementary, but like even normal adaptations. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and Molly was quite a central character early on. And there are problems with that character, but she was in a lot of it, which was no longer the case by the end. She was just a prop to be used in a ridiculous fashion. Um, And then you literally just had, like, Mrs. Hudson to say a couple jokes, and then a crazy lady to whom we shall return later on. (laughs) Yeah, if 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 you're listening and you've not watched season four... I think we'll give like a little bit of a recap in a minute because probably some listeners will not have. But the idea of describing what happened in season four, I don't think is something that a human being can do. No, <laughs> I would love to know how they summarized it for executives. Oh, they didn't. It's... I think what happens with Sherlock is the BBC 
hands a box of gold bars to Stephen Moffat <laughs> and Mark Gatiss, then they submit an unedited screenplay for a 90-minute show, and then it is filmed, and someone edits the footage together into something that can be broadcast on television. <laughs> I pity the editors of this television program. I cannot fathom. Yeah, honestly, I this season, just... something I really picked up on is all three of the episodes, basically the plot felt like it should have just been an hour-long drama because there was so much filler. I guess like visual filler, montages and stuff, but also the content, because it didn't follow as good a structure as the earlier episodes, which were more traditional crime-solving arcs, it was sort of flailing all over the place. (laughs) There was a montage in the last one that was went on and not even a montage it was like he he's figured something out i don't remember what it was but he figured it out and then they spent a minute on him having figured it out i remember that one because i was really confused because they reveal what the twist is and then there's like a full minute dedicated to him realizing what it is and then at the end of the minute he says what the resolution is and it's like we just saw that because this is a visual medium (laughs) (laughs) we just saw that happen (laughs) Yes, and there's something very sort of tense that you're waiting to have resolved. And it's like, why just, I mean, we all know how this is going to end, but just do it. We don't need this anymore. Yeah, this Um, was during the period when John Watson was stuck down a well, and it would have been amazing if the show had ended with him drowning down the well. Because we'll explain it later, but the method they used to save him from the well would not have worked and he would have drowned. (laughs) Yes, yes. But I think in the first two seasons they clearly i an hour and a half is never necessary just it just you just don't i mean they're tv movies you know so i will accept that but they had clearly put so much thought into them that it was fine and they had actual plots with mysteries in them and they kind of often had to put multiple mysteries together because that is so much time that you need yeah i mean none of them are really direct adaptations at all of the stories but there was plot happening and paradoxically there has been more and more plot as the show has gone on and also less because there's all this weird soap opera crap and weird intrigue but when you're watching the volume of stuff that's actually happening to the people in a direct way has dropped substantially. It's all just people running into rooms and shouting things <laughs> expositionally. There's, there's a lot of dazzle camouflage, which is something I notice a lot throughout kind of Stephen Moffat's later work, I guess you'd describe it. Because kind of, <laughs> the first season he did of Doctor Who I quite liked. But then as it progressed, there was a lot of this sort of running into rooms and shouting business. And yeah. there was a lot of reliance on flashy direction and a lot of visual effects and that sort of thing. And also quips and not necessarily as much character development because the character development in Sherlock doesn't really make sense, especially this season. Because <laughs> I'm trying to remember back now because like it's so long since I watched the first two seasons, but you know they don't really need to have that much character development happen over the course of the first six episodes because you know, it's a crime drama and the dynamic already works really well. But then in the latter two seasons, when they introduce Mary, and then in this season, season four, where they just have like about 15 plot twists on top of each other, the way the characters behave is incredibly erratic and their personalities don't fit with the way that their personalities are meant to be written in the show. The first two seasons, 
the pitch basically is John moves in with this weird fucking dude who has no social capabilities whatsoever, and he kind of is like, all right, you will move in with me. But he is acts like a weirdo, and then they slowly come to this point where actually they're friends, and they learn to, you know, cohabit and like each other. And yeah. then Sherlock pretends that he's dead, which is not great. And you get this very emotional stuff because he has to, you know, reckon with himself, whatever. And then after, it works, I think, psychologically quite well up to that point. I mean, it's not profoundly deep, but for what it's doing, with the exception of the weird Irene Adler stuff, which just shoot me in the face, it's done, I think, quite well. And then they come back from the Reichenbach stuff, and it is just a hellscape of, like, <laughs> heterosexual There's so nonsense. much gender stuff going on. Oh, like, my the, 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 God. the transparentness of the psychological issues with Stephen Moffat's treatment of gender in his writing. Before he was really well known, the first show that he really did was basically a rom-com he did a show called coupling which is about people in their late 20s having relationships in england um, which i didn't like very much but like not because i thought it was bad just because like i'm not really into relationship shows but like looking back on it it's just absolutely fascinating and that's what he started with because his depiction of kind of straight romantic relationships in doctor who and especially sherlock is so wild <laughs> and i i mean i have some sympathy right for the idea of introducing Watson's wife in any Sherlock Holmes adaptation, right? Because you're basically between a rock and a hard place because it's virtually impossible to inject a third person into what is basically a two-person story. You know, you don't really want to see someone invading the show unless they're really cool. But then potentially they run the risk of being too cool and there's like weird jealousy issues and stuff. And Stephen Moffat and Mark Gatiss are both like not good at writing female characters so they have to basically invent a female character who will be in love with Watson and they invent this person who's like a normal middle-aged woman and you're like okay right this is actually almost revolutionary because it's pretty rare already to see like a normal middle-aged woman on television <laughs> um, but then it turns out she's a super spy and that's just like it's just kind of the start of the way so many female characters have been in Sherlock since then, where they're introduced, there's like a twist, basically, a twist revelation that they're incredibly skilled and they're a genius. And like their intelligence is treated as a plot twist, like it's super shocking that a female character has all these skills. But then, of course, they're always outwitted by Sherlock. And this season, there's one, yes. like, you know, Mary is outwitted by Sherlock and John. And then the same thing happens with like another major, like two other major female characters who are introduced as villains. The men all get to be just like a clever, regular person. And it's like, it's so stratified as well. Like there's so many different levels of like the way you sort of, I guess, like to get academic about it, but like, you know, analyze media through like an intersectional lens or whatever. Because like in Sherlock, there's the cool, classy supervillains who are like Moriarty and what's his name, Magnuson. Yes, yeah. yes. And I think there was like, there's been like one or two others, but like they're like the big, the big classy villains. And then there's like secondary villains who are working class white men. And then there's mad, weird, poorly characterized villains played by women that are like really all over the place and have some kind of psychosexual connection to the main characters. Yeah. And like, that's the three 
kind of villain. You can't just have this season. They had a villain who, you know, she's not a main, major character, but like at the end of the episode, you find out that the crimes were all orchestrated by this elderly woman who works in the civil service. And the whole point is that she kind of flew under the radar because she's always there doing kind of transcription, but because she's like a sixty-five-year-old woman, people don't pick up on it. And when Sherlock works out who it is, he gives this little speech where he's basically, you know making fun of her for being like an old cat lady and like kind of highlighting how sad and lonely her life is and how pathetic she is and then she kind of like falls apart and I just couldn't understand what was happening like I literally couldn't get it to work in my head while I was watching because I was like the whole point of this character is that she's aware of the way the image that she presents and actually she's really powerful and is controlling all of these international spies and terrorists calling her a cat lady would be a completely meaningless insult but in the world of Sherlock, it's just like, oh no! <laughs> oh no, you've told me that I'm a cat lady. All of me has <laughs> fallen apart now. <laughs> and there's just like, it's, it's just kind of trying to get into the mindset of viewing women in that light is so fascinating. Like the whole Molly thing, right? Because um, the actress who plays Molly is pretty cool. You know, she's she talks quite a lot about the show and just about politics in general. And she's very feminist and I imagine you have to kind of jump through a lot of loops in your mind to be doing those two things at once but on Twitter I saw today I think people have been sort of criticizing Molly's role in the final episode where she's essentially been just pining for Sherlock for the whole show and the actress was like well there's nothing unfeminist about unrequited love it's like a classic literary trope and it's really tragic and I agree right there's unrequited love is a really great thing for a story or whatever but the way that she's portrayed in the show is this tragic spinster and the fact that she's still pining after Sherlock specifically is just really puzzling and the way that he reacts and the way that she reacts in the finale because they set up this scenario where basically Sherlock has to get her to say I love you on the phone or she'll get blown up which is just a ludicrous manufactured scenario but he finally gets her to do it. And then the villain's like, oh, well, we were never going to blow her up. And then he just like goes berserk and is just like really upset because he's had to hurt her feelings. And it's like, he's been hurting her feelings in exactly this way for four years. <laughs> Why is he more upset about this now than he was when people got murdered in front of him five minutes ago? <laughs> well, also at the beginning of the show, she had a crush on him and he had no idea in a way that was quite realistic you would sort of watch and she had this hopeless crush on him and you both thought, okay, this is absurd, not in an unrealistic way, but in a way where you just thought, oh, don't have a crush on this terrible man, but yeah. also I understand why you would have a crush on this <laughs> terrible mean, man. I mean, he's very dramatic and, you know, in season one, Sherlock was very handsome. Had a great and, coat. Yeah, got a really cool coat. Yeah. So you get it. You know, he shows up in your boring job where you just sit in the morgue all day, completely understandable. But... Yeah, and then it also, his not being aware of this is very clear and also makes sense based on his character. But we're now in season four, and that was four seasons ago, and the, the time has passed. There's no reason for this woman to still be in this state. But I think that gets to the heart of a lot of the problems with the show, is that if they're not directly dealing with someone, they're just kind of say, okay, well, we'll just stick you to the side and bring you back when we need you, and that's fine, which is a problem a lot of television has, but that doesn't make it less frustrating. 
it when... would make it would make more sense if it's um a long episodic show where you have uh kind of recurring yes. characters that come back but in the case of sherlock they're kind of treating it like a show where every cast member has to be in every episode by contract but it's yep. actually a series of trilogies of TV movies, and Lestrade's been every, in every episode this season. Lestrade is not needed to be in any of those episodes. Yeah. <laughs> Much as I absolutely love Lestrade, of course. Yes. <laughs> I mean, Rupert Graves, a beautiful man, yes. but he has served no purpose. Yeah. He's whatsoever. just there to make us wish about what might have been. <laughs> right. Well, and that gets back to the fact that this season, there have been, there was one actual like case okay so morgan let's tell me what was what happened in season four and because we don't want listeners to tune out you're gonna have to be succinct okay (laughs) so in the first one there was a series of margaret thatcher busts that got smashed and also someone died in a car in a fire at one of the houses where one of these busts was kept which actually was one of my favorites in a fake way moments because it was one of the only actual deduction scenes of the whole season. And he was doing his deduction thing. It was fun, fine, whatever. And then he was like, there were two types of latex in this car. Obviously this means that your son was hiding behind a fake car seat. And that's when the car went up in flames, he died. I was like, that's not how that works (laughs) at all. Like I'm willing to accept a certain level of, you know, I mean, it's the whole point of Sherlock Holmes, who's a character <laughs> I love, independent of this adaptation. But looking at the fact there are two types of latex in this car and immediately deducing that this means there was a fake decoy car seat behind which this person was. I mean, what? Like, anyway. Then it transpired that there was a connection between these fake Thatcher busts. Never is there any political thing discussed here, by the way. Yeah, weirdly, um, they never acknowledge the possibility that someone might really hate Margaret Thatcher and go right. around smile, which no. is like, really bizarre, right? Because of all the politicians you could possibly have chosen, if it was busts of, like, you know, John Major, people would, like, <laughs> no one wants to smash it, no one cares, right? Bust of Margaret Thatcher. People literally burned Margaret Thatcher in effigy when she died in Britain. <laughs> the number one first culprit would be like, oh, it's someone who's really fixated on hating Margaret Thatcher. Right. But no, it turns out that it is something to do with Mary's old mercenary group. And this hinges on a USB stick that she and all her mercenary friends had with all of their data on it, which kept them... Uh, bound together because they could all betray each other very easily. Or, or lose the USB stick right. and then have and someone then pick it up on the train and give it to WikiLeaks. Like, it's just, yeah, yeah we're going to be super secure by being really not secure because we've I, got a USB stick full of our secret files. It's the stupidest piece of spy antics. Literally the stupidest fucking thing I've ever heard. My <laughs> brain is coming out of my ears. So... She thought all her friends were dead, her mercenary friends. One of them is still alive. He wants to kill her because he thinks that she betrayed him. So then she travels halfway across the world to try to find him or information about him or something. Only it turns out that Sherlock was tracking her from something he put inside the USB stick. And he gets there first because Sherlock is smarter than all women. But as our friend James pointed out, if he were tracking her on the USB stick, how could he have gotten to the place where she was before that she got there? 
what how, what's the solution to that problem? It doesn't make any sense. None of this makes any sense. It's so dumb. Anyway, then she gets shot at the end. I don't remember what happens between point A and point B there. She winds up dying. Yeah, it's I mean, basically the um the old lady civil servant person, it turns out she was sort of orchestrating this conflict between the former mercenary spy group. And then when she tries to shoot Sherlock, Mary jumps in the way and dies. And there's an astonishingly bad death scene where Martin Freeman, bless his heart, an extremely good actor usually, makes some kind of bizarre kind of snoring noise while screaming <laughs> over Mary's body. It's really awkward. Some I of feel the worst like... acting I've seen on television ever. It's really bad. Like... It's also quite sad because, like, I'm sure it was partly affected because those two actors were going through a divorce at the time in real life. Yes, and yes. And it's awkward, but... but at the same time, that scene was shocking. Yeah. Much as I have a lot of respect for Martin Freeman as an actor. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile... That John and Mary just had a baby, and John had gotten a woman's number on the bus because she just gave it to him, and proceeded to have a text affair with her, which is a normal thing to do when your wife's just had a baby. Uh, and before he could confess to Mary, right before she died, she instead felt guilty about having lied to him about her mercenary past, and told him many times about how amazingly perfect he was. And then she died, and then he felt very guilty about having... Okay, so... She did on her by text. <laughs> the John infidelity thing, I will never get over because, John, <laughs> you know, John Watson's meant to be really loyal, and while it's quite hard to one hundred percent get on board with his relationship with Mary, because Mary's characterization is all over the place, one has to assume that he's a loyal husband and he loves her a lot. But we're just supposed to like, but then they give him this characterization point, which is like the hugest stereotype of a really shit man who's cheating on his wife, who just had a baby. It's not even slightly relatable or nice. And although John is not characterised as, like, a nice fluffy guy, you know, he's meant to be slightly an asshole, which is why he gets on with Sherlock. What the fuck? It was so bad that, like, loads and loads of fans were sort of theorising that there'd be some kind of twist where it would turn out that the woman on the bus was actually a spy or something and he, she was actually passing information to him or the texts weren't actually romantic and they just seemed romantic uh, but no no they were definitely having a text affair and in the next episode um when john finally apologizes to mary's ghost um he's kind of like yeah you know i wanted to have an affair and then mary's ghost which is obviously a figment of john's imagination is like go ahead you should have an affair with her <laughs> and sherlock tells him it was only texts so what we can divine from this about the writers, I don't want to state publicly, but wow, okay, that's interesting <laughs> to put on a television program. I'm very curious about I how know. many couples watched this together and had a dispute over whether it counts as cheating or not. <laughs> I imagine many don't do this. Yeah, because no while this, this particular scenario is not and will never be relevant to my life, I do think that it does count as cheating. <laughs> it's not as bad as, you know, going and fucking someone. But, like, you're definitely cheating to a certain extent. So, especially if your wife just had a baby. Amazing. It's the opposite of extenuating circumstances. It's extenuating circumstances. Yes. So that was episode one. <laughs> episode two, how could we even summarize it? I don't know what happened. It. I, I, I don't know. Obviously, was... they're in a fight because... <laughs> Yes. Sherlock kind of blames himself somewhat for Mary's death, and John is really upset and also kind of blames Sherlock for his death. So Sherlock's gone on 
basically a drug vendor. And he's become obsessed with this public figure who's really clearly based on um, a real person in Britain named Jimmy Savile, who died a few years ago. He was a TV presenter who his whole public persona was that he was really creepy. And after he died, all this kind of stuff came to light that he was sexually abused, literally hundreds of people, children, adults, a lot of people who were in vulnerable situations like children's hospitals. And because he was known for doing charity work, he had access to these hospitals, like he had a room in some of them, you know, so basically he like ruined hundreds of people's lives and was a multiple rapist. And for some reason, Sherlock showrunners felt that they should do a kind of Sherlock version of this character who instead of being a sexual abuser is a murderer. And the kind of idea is that he's this really blatantly creepy guy who sort of hides in plain sight, but also does a lot of charity work. So people are kind of unwilling to give him away. And as a concept, I think this definitely could have worked because it sort of highlights the way that people can commit really obvious crimes in public, but because they're a powerful figure, they can get away with it. Because like, obviously that's something we see in the news constantly all the time. Like you can tell some people are doing really bad stuff and getting away with it. But the way they sort of portray this was just so ridiculous that it really fell apart and also felt sort of weird and insensitive in the context that there's a good chance that some people watching this show are literally either victims of Jimmy Savile or linked to him in some way. And the creators of the show have, I'm assuming, spent years hearing about this stuff on the gossip mill because it's been at the heart of the BBC for years and years and years. So weird choices all round. <laughs> but um, yeah, the kind of plot was centred around this guy who is a really rich serial killer and his hobby is that he likes to confess to people and then wipe their memories with a memory drug. The episode ends with obviously Sherlock solving the crime by getting him to uh, confess when the room is bugged, which really kind of invites the question of why didn't they just like bug the room where he always does the confessions which would have been a lot simpler but and, it turns out right at the end the whole yeah. thing was kind of organized by mary from beyond the grave because she sent a message to sherlock basically telling him you need to create a scenario where john can feel like a hero and save you from yourself so sherlock's answer is to put himself in danger by you know taking loads of really dangerous substances and then almost getting murdered by a serial killer and then even though John, by the end of it, is aware that this is something Mary decided to do to help him get out of his grief, he still personally goes to go and save Sherlock by driving across town in a taxi to save him in person. Instead of calling Mycroft or emergency services to go and save Sherlock instead. So he shows up after Sherlock has been choked. And I'm like, you could have saved him from being choked instead of coincidentally showing up at precisely the right moment <gasps> just before he dies. You could have called right. Mycroft. But no, of course, it's got to be it's got to be in person. Um, this is but after like, yeah. he has also like violently beat him. Yeah, they are at this point not friends. Like they've had a falling out. But basically, the scene where he beats him up is a scene where he's beating up his friend who's grieving as much as he is. He's a drug addict who's gone on a bender and is having a relapse, right? And it's like none of this really makes any of the characters involved seem even slightly like good people. And the beating scene comes right after they've brought Sherlock into a children's hospital to talk to the children when he is clearly, clearly strung out. And then he and the serial killer have an extended conversation about serial killers in front of all these child patients yeah. at this hospital. And I just thought, I don't want to be watching this. Like, I mean... I didn't like any of it. So it was it was a masochistic experience, period. But that in particular, I was just like, 
why is any of this happening? This is so gross and just weird and tasteless. And what? I was, I was so confused. But all of it was overshadowed by the big twist. Right, because there were several new female characters who were introduced in this episode. Um, there's John's new therapist. There is the daughter of the serial killer, who's this kind of, I guess, like 30-year-old blonde woman. Um, and then obviously in the last episode, there was the woman who started exchanging texts with Watson on the bus. And right at the end of episode two, we discovered that this is actually all Sherlock's sister in disguise. Yes. Sherlock's secret sister, who we didn't know about, and as we discover in the next episode, Sherlock did not know about either. And she is the final villain for the third episode, which is truly bizarre. Because, like, the whole idea, you know, behind, even in the original books, is that there's two Holmes brothers, and um, for kind of a very long time, like, maybe even, like, over 100 years, there's been, I guess, a fan theory that there was a third Holmes brother, which would make sense in the Victorian context, because you'd have the oldest brother who'd be in charge of the family seat. And then you'd have the younger two brothers. So you'd have Mycroft who'd go into the civil service and work for the government. And then you'd have Sherlock as the youngest son. And that's the reason why he has the trappings of aristocracy, but doesn't actually have any money. Yeah. Um, so that makes sense. And then he was kind of nicknamed Sherinford Holmes because this was a name that Arthur Conan Doyle was considering calling Sherlock before he wrote the books. Yeah. So for a couple of years, fans of Sherlock have been kind of theorizing that Sherinford's going to show up. And then this season, we knew he would, and he turned out to be she, and it's the sister whose name is um, Euros. And she is supposedly a million times smarter than Sherlock or Mycroft, but instead of illustrating this and her just being very clever, she's been imprisoned on this super impressive secret island jail um, for like her entire life by Mycroft without trial, because as a child, she was like a psycho child. But her kind of deductive powers are basically like the X-Men. She can hypnotize people. She can make anyone do anything. She's psychic. She's a super genius. And the kind of supernatural level of her powers just makes everything seem completely pointless, right? Because the show kind of began as something that has a silly and over-the-top tone and is very energetic compared to the slow-moving kind of subtleties of the original Sherlock Holmes, which is fine. But because Stephen Moffat and Mark Gatiss are completely obsessed with upping the ante every season, it no longer makes any sense because you're meant to kind of think that Sherlock is using logic and deduction and the scientific method to solve crimes. But he's up against someone who supposedly has spent their entire life in this jail and is able to, just by speaking to members of staff, hypnotise them into orchestrating a massive, elaborate plot. So, like, she was able to escape the island, go to London, impersonate multiple people, seduce John Watson by text message, and also set up several, like, physical traps around England, including having a giant kind of replica jail cell set up outside the Holmes family house, and then, like, have people flown into it. She also (laughs) creates this scenario where... She's basically voice acting the role of a little girl who's in the middle of a plane crash. So for the whole of the third episode, the finale, Sherlock is simultaneously on the phone to this girl who's in a crashing plane, trying to deduce where she is and how he can help her, and also solving a series of game show style puzzles for Euros, which she's set up around her own prison. So she has all of the prison guards working for her, setting up supervillain games, and all of them are stuff like, oh, either you can shoot your brother or you can shoot Watson, 
or you either shoot this guy who works at the prison or you sh or I'm going to shoot his wife. So it, it's all kind of stuff where it's like someone has to die, which is where the kind of Molly phone call comes in. And that sequence just went on for like half an hour and we did not really need any of it because it's like we know she's a bad person and we know that Sherlock's clever <laughs> and yes. you're just killing people at this point. But it did mean that, like, in this episode, basically every single female character was both endangered and rescued by Sherlock personally. Because the episode opens with kind of a grenade going off at Baker Street. So Mrs. Hudson's put in danger because of Sherlock. Then Molly's put in danger. And so is this woman who's the wife of the prison governor who actually does get shot. And then the episode kind of culminates in this completely ridiculous sequence where Watson is down a well... And this is the same well that Euros kind of hid the body of Sherlock's childhood best friend when they were like five. So the idea is that the point where Mycroft realised Euros was evil is when she murdered this like little child, hid the body, left clues, but like they could never solve the clues. So we're supposed to believe that neither Mycroft nor law enforcement were able to find the body of a child in the first place you'd look which is a nearby well <laughs> um, because it has to be close because a five-year-old committed the crime right it's like you yeah. have to get the child to walk down a well but then glossing over that in the modern day john is like chained down at the bottom of the well and at the end of the episode sherlock works out that the girl on the plane is fake and that Euros is just using it as a metaphor of her own mental state. Like she's flying above everyone, but she's, she's about to crash and she needs Sherlock's whole help to get her to come down. And she knows that he's the only one who can really understand her. So the whole thing is really just that she's kind of mad and too clever and sensitive and she needs a man's help. And every, every crime she's ever done is just because she wants Sherlock's attention. And now she's got it. She just like basically surrenders and goes into a catatonic state and goes to jail and that's the end of the episode after Watson has been saved from the well by them just throwing him a rope even though he's chained up so it's like he's chained up but you've given him a rope this is useless <laughs> oh my god well it's all it's just amazing because as with any form of storytelling it all is about the internal logic so you can have something that's totally absurd but as long as there's a set of rules governing the absurdity yeah, I, feel, I feel like the kind of setup of this is there is kind of that level of absurdity almost in, I guess, leverage or something, you know, so, like a silly heist drama. And, you know, I love silly heist dramas, but the point where you're supposed to accept that Eurus can do all this stuff that's basically superpowers, but then Sherlock just defeats her because the story needs him to be cleverer than everyone, and then he needs to be congratulated by the narrative. Right, so at the beginning of the show they set up what the show was going to be and there were things about it that were totally silly and unbelievable, but you could basically believe in a heightened version of reality that it was all plausible enough, right? Like the deductions he does, you know, of course he can't tell what kind of mud it is from just looking at the shoe, but you can sure, whatever, that's fine. He's obviously super smart. He's got all the stuff in his brain. But then they sort of decided that they had to go beyond that and then added the super spy stuff. And then they piled on also, 
you know, everyone has to be cleverer than everyone else. There has to be more people who are, you know, and even more psychopathic. They're obsessed with psychopaths and sociopaths and all of this stuff. That well, they're obsessed with using psychology. those words with no kind right. of connection to what they actually mean. Exactly. Kind of the it's treatment of nonsense. mental health in this show oh, is completely God. beyond the pale. <laughs> um, and so then it gets heightened beyond the point where it bears any resemblance to human problems anymore. And so even though to begin with, it wasn't like a kitchen sink drama, it reminds me a lot of the sort of superhero problem where every single superhero movie now is about the end of the world and the world's never going to fucking end in any of these movies. So who gives a shit? Right. And probably no one's going to die either because they're all contracted for seven films. So there always is a MacGuffin that's going to blow apart the whole universe and they have to stop it. And you just think, okay, I'm not worried about that. (laughs) You know, sure. And obviously there has to be some stakes, but smaller stories that are actually about humans and their problems are more compelling than Mary turning out to be a spy and betraying people and then shooting people and all this nonsense. Like, it doesn't... Because in this show, most people probably assumed that at some point Mary would die, you know, and she she did. But, like, the way they depicted grief was so weird. Because they centred it so much around John's guilt about having this affair and then having him be absolved by the ghost... And then also Mary leaves behind these video messages that are essentially kind of encouraging John to keep on, like, continue on with his life. And that's the final montage at the end of the series finale is sort of saying, well, you know, John and Sherlock are going to be happy together with the baby. Who, by the way, the baby is, like, invisible for, like, the entire three episodes. So it's, like, it's completely unclear who's taking care of the baby, right? Because at one point Molly is. And I'm like, first of all, don't they have any other friends? But Molly's (laughs) taking care of the baby despite having a full-time job herself. But then in the final episode, I mean, I guess Watson just employs a full-time nanny while also having a suburban house and apparently holding down a job as a doctor. But I don't think that's remotely possible considering how little time he actually spends at work, which is like none. Have we seen him at work since season two? No. I I was yeah. genuinely surprised to discover that he was still meant anymore. to be a doctor, right? So yeah. maybe he got a publishing deal for his blog and got a ton of money from a very credulous British publisher. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. But, like, kind of the depiction of, of Molly's death, you know, it's the kind of video messages that she leaves are just so implausible and catered towards the men's lives. And, like, the one at the end just sounds so much like a TV montage. It's just so difficult to swallow. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, you know, all along what it was really about was the stories. And I'm like, that's not something a person says, even if I suspend every inch of disbelief. <laughs> <laughs> right, you're not going to sit there thinking, yes, this woman would definitely... Be like say... shouting out her husband's blog while she's dead. Like, <laughs> right. It was really all about Sherlock. I don't think so. <laughs> uh... Yeah, it ends on this ridiculous sort of cheesy, cutesy montage of the two of them and this baby in this flat that had nothing to do with the whole rest of the season, which was all murder and and 
Yes. I, I would accept the ending montage in general, right? Because I feel like yeah. it's, it's basically the best ending you can give, which is just to say they're going to be happy, they're friends again, the baby will be raised by its parents and they're going to continue solving crimes. So it's like you have as happy a conclusion as you can have, right? Which is to say it's going to keep going. But it's completely unearned in the context of the season because for the first two episodes, Sherlock and John don't even seem like they like each other. They're not spending much time together. They're mean to each other all the time. And then for the second episode, obviously, they're kind of in a fight because Mary's dead. And then in the third episode, their dynamics basically gone back to the way it is in season two, where they're just really friendly and they're on the same page and they're really close and stuff. And they have a lot of respect for each other, but there's no healing moment. And also, Sherlock is suddenly behaving a lot more nicely than he is in the first two episodes. But you never see any of that character development happen on screen. No. So it's like, how did he suddenly become really sensitive and be someone who's able to talk to a small child on the phone and comfort them? And right. like know the right thing to say to John and his brother out of nowhere. So you can't just conveniently rearrange everything. Also, it's just tonally... The whole thing is so dark in such a gratuitous way. And then to be like, and then they solved some crimes and had played with the baby. I was like, I'd watch. Like, and you've just that's... witnessed a ton of deaths. Right. <laughs> and it was also so annoying because, you know, I don't need to see the two of them play with the baby, but it was sort of what the show should have been doing for three episodes. And instead we got this parade of macabre, like nonsense. And it was interesting. I found that that third episode so astonishingly offensive. I mean, all the stuff with this sort of mad Victorian woman locked up in a madhouse prison designed for her. And you know, the threat of her intelligence, and you could go on and on and on. But I also found it much more watchable than the first two, which I thought were really dire. And I realized that it basically was that even though everyone was out of character, the characters were actually interacting with each other. Yeah. <laughs> which is the literally the lowest bar. Yeah, because, I mean, it was pretty interesting, especially the first part, kind of before yeah. they got into Eurus's weird crystal maze contest thing, right? For the first half hour or so, it was just Sherlock-style fun. And while it didn't necessarily make sense, it was like, you know, whatever. Yeah. But the first two episodes, the whole reason that anyone likes Sherlock Holmes is Holmes and Watson interacting. Yeah. That's that's it's it. the quintessential buddy cop drama, and you've managed to lose the central aspect that makes everyone like it. <laughs> I wonder if it is some kind of either conscious or subconscious reaction against all the internet stuff. Just being kind of like, fuck you. We don't have to do any of that. We're going to have them fight. I mean, yeah. not to be a conspiracy theorist, but... I mean, there's no way they can't be affected by it because yeah. the fandom for John Locke is just so intense now. It's sort of edged out this normal level of shipping that happens with yeah. every single TV show and it's yeah. now just something that comes up routinely in mainstream interviews because the British press just likes to kind of make jokes about it in a sort of unfair way yeah. but also just every public appearance and Q&A and screenings and stuff they get asked about it because so many people genuinely bought into the theory that John and Sherlock would end up being a couple in the show which was plainly never going to happen because yeah. The show subtextually is relatively homophobic throughout the entire series, right? Yes. 
the, the way that sexuality and romantic relationships are depicted in the show, it just didn't seem like something they were gearing towards the hugest mainstream depiction of a queer relationship uh, in TV no, history. No, I would say not. <laughs> there were a couple moments this season, oh my god, the, the, the neuroticism around this is so fascinating to observe in the writing. At the end of the second episode, when John kind of forgives Sherlock, I guess he gets a text from Irene Adler because it's his birthday, and John goes on this whole thing about how he should go after her because his wife is dead and so he doesn't have a you know romantic partner anymore. And the thing that really fulfills you in life is, you know... Yeah, like having a woman, basically. <laughs> and I just was like, what is going on? It was so weird, because the only way to read into it is either, obviously, the writers are just, like, desperately trying to make sure everything's as heterosexual as humanly possible and be like, no homo, bro. Or it's just Watson's gone off the deep end because of all his guilt issues, because he's saying, yeah, the most fulfilling thing in the whole world is being married, and Mary was the light of my life. And it was just like, you were really trying quite hard to cheat on her about five minutes ago. <laughs> and also, Sherlock has really plainly stated about a million times that he doesn't want a relationship. Even though the Irene Adler thing is just absolute pure nonsense, because they essentially took a character whose role in the books was to impress Sherlock a lot and then completely forget about him and leave the country and never think about him again while Sherlock just thinks that she's incredibly admirable and keeps a photo in his desk for the rest of his life like wow the only woman I'll ever be impressed by because she's such an intellectual giant you know that's her role in the books in the show she outwits him but then they make sure to tag a scene on to the end where he saves her from like terrorists I guess is what it's meant to be in one of the many weird international colonialist incidents in the in the show. Yeah. And then she's meant to text him every year on his birthday to say happy birthday. And also there was like a weird situation where she's meant to be a lesbian, but also she's attracted to him. Like, there's a lot because going on. he's so irresistible. Who could resist? Uh, resist? It's... Obviously no one. Yeah. I... <laughs> but yeah, there's, there's a lot of kind of... I do, I do feel some sympathy for it, right? Because... Although I obviously am not exactly fond of either of these writers, especially Stephen Moffat, there's no way anyone could be prepared for the level of attention the show received. Yes. And the kind of the way to interact with fandom. It's not something a lot of people really understand instinctively, especially if you're like a middle-aged dude who's surrounded yeah. by, you know, BBC producers and is suddenly dealing with a bunch of 20 and 30-something women who, you know, are extremely good at analysing popular media in a way that you're not familiar with <laughs> so you know i understand why it happened but at the same time they did not deal with it well and uh, <laughs> none of this has ended happily for anyone <laughs> no no indeed i just hope it's over for good because i, I can't deal with this anymore <laughs> just... yeah it's it's they're not producing first of all they're not producing good art i think if you're a casual viewer, you're going to get the same experience out of watching other crime dramas. So it's yeah. not going to be a huge gaping hole in the media landscape. And if you're someone who's really obsessed with Sherlock, I think at this point it's pretty likely that you've either fallen out of love with it because the quality's gone down, or you've been really heartily disappointed by the fact that John and Sherlock are very clearly not going to get together in the show. Yeah. So it's basically a lose-lose. <laughs> and it's time to wrap it up. And yep. stick to fan fiction or other adaptations of Sherlock Holmes. Yes. And also, I really, for my own psychological benefit, I need the show to stop so I don't have to 
look at British TV criticism of it because <laughs> if you read TV criticism, there is a lot of really great writing about television in the US, mostly about prestige dramas, obviously, like, you know, people have written whole books about Mad Men and Breaking Bad and what have you, but also about just mainstream television. There's relatively good criticism in mainstream newspapers and places like the AV Club. In Britain, that functionally doesn't exist, right? Occasionally, there will be a reasonably interesting think piece in The Guardian or whatever, but the regular TV criticism for British television, just, it's so simplistic and it doesn't have a respect for the readers. Often it would just be like a description of what happened in the show. Sometimes it would be an inaccurate description of what happened in the show. (laughs) Um, And there's no kind of depth to it. And especially when it comes to really major dramas like Downton Abbey or or Sherlock or things like that, you know, that have millions of viewers. No matter how bad the episode is compared to the average quality of the show, it will be given a glowing review, which does not help anyone. Because if you're someone who doesn't have a lot of kind of critical viewpoints on your work or someone who doesn't get critiques from their creative partners, which is, I suspect, what's going on with Sherlock, if you're constantly told you're a genius, <laughs> then your work is not going to improve. And I think that's part of the reason why Sherlock went downhill, because it was constantly just no matter what they produced, it was described as really amazing by the British media. Yeah. And obviously the BBC is not going to say no to that if it's still getting good ratings and good reviews. Don't change a winning formula. But it's not a winning formula, you know. Because seasons one and two, they had... Two episodes of each of those seasons were good, and then episode two of both of those seasons was either bad or extremely racist. There <laughs> and was that two wasn't... and then one. Oh, okay, right. But yes, yeah. your point stands. But yeah, if, if everyone's saying they're all equally amazing, then nothing will improve. And in fact, <laughs> in this case, it did the opposite. <laughs> Although Moffat's shows, even in the US, they've bamboozled the critics for the most part, because most of what I read will be glowing. And I just think... Well, Martin Freeman and Benedict Cumberbatch are very good. And it's a very expensive show. I think it's also just that it's British. And it's British. I really think Because the coverage coverage of Downton Abbey from American TV critics is very interesting. (laughs) You know, here, I'm like, this is like an entertaining, very expensive soap opera, which I enjoyed for several seasons. But politically, it's just truly truly shocking because it's glorifying this really classist horrible period of british history whereas if you're kind of removed from that and if you're watching british uh, historical dramas from a bit more of an anglophile perspective it's easy to just sort of ignore that element and be like yeah it's really fun and i'm like <laughs> well that would basically be like all of my ancestors constantly being stomped on and like raped by their aristocratic masters but okay <laughs> But it was great times for everyone. Good dresses. They're dressed so pretty. Yeah, which is part of the part of the issues I had with the crown. Although I think Downton Abbey is considerably better than the crown in terms of um, pacing and storytelling. But they had the benefit of being able to make it up. Yes, that does help. Uh, I think that's probably all we have to say. Yeah. Good luck. I would recommend if people want to watch something. Um, compelling and suspenseful i recently watched the honorable woman which is from a couple years ago which is is nothing like sherlock but is (laughs) is is a mystery and is good and it's eight hours long i think and my god also bbc my god 
So much better in every way. Maggie Gyllenhaal, perfect. <laughs> she gives some speeches, and I was like, man, on the printed page, this would have been so fucking boring. But just keep talking. It's all good. Yeah, do not watch this if you have or not. Or watch Silent Witness. Uh, there was a new season of Silent Witness that started, like, I think yesterday. I'm going to watch the first episode tonight, but Silent Witness is the more procedural, high-profile BBC crime drama it also comes along as a miniseries once every year and it's quite gritty it's extremely well acted and written but a lot more of it is sort of people in labs being like what does the blood spatter mean <laughs> um, but you know it's it's really really good at being serious crime television <laughs> and it's been running it's the kind of classic british tv drama where it's been running for i think about 30 years but it Great makes a, an average of three episodes every two years <laughs> but yeah or, you know, watch Elementary. Watch the Jerry Brett Sherlock Holmes from the 80s and 90s, which is, canonically speaking, the finest Sherlock Holmes adaptation, because it very accurately adapts every single episode. And also, <laughs> Jeremy Brett is the best person to ever play Sherlock Holmes, bar none. Yeah, there are many options here. <laughs> There's many not. options. So next week, we will finally <laughs> be airing... Gab's masterpiece. Yeah, Yuri on Ice, which I realise we've been kind of mentioning, I think, for over a month now. We recorded yeah. our Yuri on Ice podcast while Morgan was visiting me for Christmas this year, but we felt the need to slot Sherlock in there, so it would still be timely. But that will be here next week, and hopefully you'll be here for it. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, thank you as always for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, we would greatly appreciate a rating or review on iTunes. It's how we find new listeners. Otherwise, you can find us on overinvestedpodcast.com, on Twitter at overinvestedpod, or on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast. Thanks. Bye.